welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled you are joining us today. We're going to be talking about some research when it comes to Alzheimer's and dementia, which is always exciting to learn about. Now, if you liked our, our opening music, it's called Clarion Call, and uh, the artist is the Mark Arneson Band. So you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. We are so appreciative of them letting us use their music. And for those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people uh, so that we get a, a good feeling, big and small, what's going on all around the world. So if you're diagnosed or starting to feel you're having some symptoms, maybe you're a care partner, a business professional, an author, a a music uh, director, a, a movie maker, an advocate, a researcher, uh, maybe you're a child making a difference. We like to hear from everybody. So please reach out to me and I would be glad to talk to you more about being a guest on the show. Um, I always like to do a couple of shout outs. I'm really excited. We're going to do some movie screenings again of the film, A Timeless Love. I'm going to be in Winona, Minnesota, April 7th. And April 8th, and you can register for the screening in Talkback by calling 507-454-5212. That's 507-454-5212. And then I am still doing uh, some support groups online. One is the um, Memory Cafe, Arthur's Memory Cafe. We meet the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at one o'clock central time. Anybody in the world is welcome to join us on that. And then also typically in person, we meet um, the fourth Wednesday of each month for Brookdale North Oaks caregiving program. And hopefully this next month coming up in March, we will be able to meet in person. Otherwise we will convert to virtual. Also, I want to mention the uh, dementia map. If you haven't checked that out, it's a global resource directory that is building out more and more every day. There are 150 resources you can check out on the resource directory itself, but there's also a glossary of terms, there's a blog, and there's an events calendar. Now, we are going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner, uh, who has done a wonderful summary of the footbar walker. And I think you're going to want to hear this and we will be back with our guests. I love the footbar walker and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. 
I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. So I am really excited to introduce our guest today. We have Maria Magicini with us, and she is the founder and president and CEO and executive board member of Anovis uh, Bio. She has devoted her life and 30 years of her career to studying neurodegenerative diseases and their possible treatments. In 2008, she founded Anovis, and this is her second biotech company. In addition, we're going to be talking with Chang Feng, and she is the Senior Vice President of Research and Development at Anovis Bio, and she is an accomplished neuroscientist with more than a decade of experience in neurodegenerative diseases with a broad scientific knowledge and hands-on experience. Well, ladies, I am thrilled to have you join us, and I can't wait to learn more about your work. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day. To start, I always like to ask every guest if they have been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. And Maria, I'm going to throw that to you first, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, Thank you for having us. Yes, in fact, my mom died of Alzheimer's a few years ago. Her sister died of Alzheimer's a few years earlier. And while that seems like I should be scared, I'm not. They were both way in their 90s when they came down with the disease. And realistically, unfortunately, by the time we are 90, all of us, we have a 50% chance of getting Alzheimer's disease. So the fact that they got it this late, I almost have to be thankful for it. Yeah, I would tend to agree. My mom had symptoms starting in her 50s and lived for 30 years with the disease. So yeah, um, later, I think is is better, especially if it runs in the family, you know, and like you said, with aging, most of us are gonna, gonna be dealing with something like that. Um, how about you, Chang? Yeah, um, my grandfather from my mom's side um, got Alzheimer's disease in his late 80s and died of it uh, about a decade ago. Okay. Okay. Sometimes these days, it's almost hard to find someone whose family, either direct family or indirect family, not touched by those diseases. Very true. Very true. I've, I've spoken to groups of a thousand people and I'll ask like six questions. I'll have everybody stand up and then I'll say, you know, has your grandma, your grandpa, and they sit down one by one. And th- there might be a handful of people out of a thousand people that haven't been touched and people look around and they're just shocked because we still don't talk about it for the prevalence that it exists. And so, you know, we need to get that door open to more comfortable conversations Maria, I want to have you talk a little bit about how did you get into neurology, you know, and and what was so enticing about that 
that career choice for you? I think I got interested in the brain way before I knew that it was called neuro something. So I was always fascinated by how things happen. Very early on, I became interested in the development of termites and of cockroaches and when their brain decides that they become adults and can make babies and when their brain decides that they cannot do that and have to remain infertile forever. So I thought that was fascinating. And in fact, I would open brains and look at these different brain pieces. And if you hit one, you make their development go in one direction. And if you kill the other piece, you make the development go in the other direction. I thought that was fascinating. That is fascinating. That's very fascinating. Um, how about you, Cheng? Um, was there something that pulled you into this realm as well? Or yeah, I actually came to the U.S. for grad school for oncology. So in the grad school, they usually have you rotate three different laboratories so you can choose which one you are most interested in. So the first one I went into is actually using just love for a neuroblastoma um, model. So I got very interested in neuroscience. I actually took more courses in neuroscience and I joined a neuroscience laboratory for my PhD work. Uh, anxiety and depression. So I've never looked back. Okay, well, I'm glad both of you haven't, um, because you're doing some, some neat things. Chang, there's just this seems to be this huge failure rate out there in terms of development for Alzheimer's therapies. And I'm wondering if you can tell us why you think that is and, and what are we doing wrong out there? It's, uh, it's just so hard. Um, so usually, if you compare it with oncology, oncology usually is very um, gene-oriented. So you have a mutated gene, so you know where your target is. But for neuroscience, especially if you look at Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, ARS, um, we don't really know what are the genes linked with it. And we don't really know exactly the cause of it, except for um, age is the most um, biggest correlation with any of those um, neurodegenerative diseases. So second, if you ask the scientist, then yeah, they will have to start with animals, right? You can't just start with humans. Not having a direct um, good animal model also contribute to that, right? Because we mimic um, what happens in humans first in animals. And then if it's um, efficacious in those animal models, we have some indication we can test it in humans. So all of these, because of a lack of understanding, we don't really have good animal models. And third is in the brain. So it's really hard to penetrate the blood-brain brain barrier. So that itself excluded lots of small molecules. And then the last but not the least is you are treating people who, even though diseased, but can still you know, live um, for decades, right? So you cannot be like oncology, put people on um, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, both are extremely toxic. But when you look at uh, life or death situations, you can let go a little bit of toxicity. But for um, neuroscience, we have to be extremely cautious. We don't wanna do any harm to these people beyond what they're already suffering. Yeah. Well, I have to say it's refreshing. You are one of the few researchers out there that I've had on 
error that says we really don't know. And, and that's the, the belief of the general public is we really don't know, but we seem to kind of keep tunneling down one path over and over and over, even though there's been some evidence that, you know, hey, this, this might not be accurate. And I know personally, um, for myself, you know, I just, I just think it's such a baby disease that we know so little about it. And, you know, new, new phraseology and um, new terms are popping up all the time in terms of the different types of dementia that are out there. And yet everyone still, for the most part, still refers to it as Alzheimer's disease. And yet there's so many, so many differences out there. So um, Maria, I'd like to ask you, you know, you've been 30 years in this career and, you know, what have you seen in terms of major changes in research? Has there been any? <laughs> well, I think the major changes have been in cancer. When I was a little kid, there was nothing. And then there was chemo and then there was radiation. And while they work, they're pretty toxic, as Cheng just said. And now we have immune oncology, which is very specific for one cancer drug. And that is really where we need to go with Alzheimer's disease, not necessarily with, an with a neural approach in terms of immunology approach or antibodies. It could be a small molecule. And I feel that the next 10 years are really going to be the 10 years where we open up a lot of different research avenues and development avenues and come up with a lot of new drugs. In fact, I should say, we have been coming up with a lot of new approaches. If you look at the small companies that today all work in neurodegeneration, every single one of us has a different approach. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know which one works, but there is a good chance that a number of them will work. And if we have a few drugs that finally work, then we can start doing combinations, we can start looking at effects, we can start subdividing the disease and figuring out, as you just said, different dementias may need different treatments. So I think the next 10 years will be very exciting for the area, whereas for the last 20 years, we have been pretty stuck. You know, I, I've had a lot of people comment, um, you know, with this, this latest treatment that was out, and then it was kind of, you know, said, nope, we're not going to approve it. And then it came down half in price. And, and people are saying the whole process that happened there, it, they feel is going to harm future um, therapies. I would love to know what both of your thoughts are on that. I'm going to go to Maria first. And it's hard to decide what's going to happen. You know, you can have both versions. You can say it's a small step. The drug works a tiny, tiny little bit, but it might help a tiny, tiny little bit. The drug has a lot of side effects. Are the, is the is efficacy worth the side effects? And you can decide yes, you can decide no. You can say it's the first step in a long trip that we have to go. So exactly how that's going to impact us, I cannot know longer term. Short term, it has really, really dropped the stock. Because if a large company can't figure it out, why can the little companies figure it out? Mm -hmm. Yep. Chang, anything that you want to add on that? 
Yeah, I actually think, you know, tau hypothesis, um, a beta hypothesis has been too prominent a hypothesis in Alzheimer's field for decades, right? At least for the past 20 years. Um, so they have their reasons why they are very appealing hypotheses. I think for the antibody drug, for what's worth, it actually works beautifully in cleaning plaques in human brains. So I think, but then it has very little, if any, um, clinical efficacy in patients' outcomes. I think it tells us very clearly, you know, this hypothesis may not work or may not represent the full picture. So I hope the field would learn and actually um, pay more attention to other alternative mechanism of actions, which like Maria said, actually, if you look at the little companies, we're all working on different mechanism of actions. Um, so I think that, that would be the trend for the next 10 years. And I have to say, you know, I talk with people all over the world at all different levels and the excitement for the smaller companies is pretty high because they feel like there isn't one track that's going to get to the bottom of this. And they want to see a wide variety of therapies um, being pursued. And they see so much overlap between their disease process too, depending on, on which one they have, or some have multiple um, you know, combinations of dimension stuff too. So Maria, can we talk a little bit about um, your company looking at how do you reverse some of the neurodegenerative um, targets, um, you know, with these neurotoxic um, proteins that are in our brain and give us a little bit of background with that. Yes. So uh, as Cheng just said, most people know the main targets is abedontal, plaques and tangles. If you look at the brain of an Alzheimer patient, there are also Lewy bodies that are actually usually put into Parkinson's. And there are TDP aggregates that right now people thought were only in ALS. So as you keep looking, you see more toxic proteins. So if you just take away one, that's really not good enough. You may get a small effect, but you still have the other toxic proteins. So how does our drug remove more than one? And it just so happens that nature designed these proteins to be regulated the same way. So their translation, their manufacture is done the same way. And because their translation is the same, we can inhibit the translation of all of them. If it wasn't the same, we would have to inhibit each one independently. But for reasons that nature decided, and there are some hypotheses why that is so, they all are regulated the same way. And so by interfering with that regulation, we lower all levels. Well, that's really interesting. And that's really exciting too. You know, when you've got those multiple various, because we hear, you know, how expensive this whole process is and you know, if you can get everybody on the same train track with, with one thing, um, that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, Shane, what about you? What do you think the mode of action needs to be in terms of, of pursuing these proteins? Um, I think like Maria said, our drug has a very unique mechanism of actions, right? So 
this um, it took us a while to figure this out, um, and it works beautifully. It actually doesn't work in a normal cell situation. It's only when your cells are challenged, injured, so it would produce a lot of ion inside. So that would activate the overexpression of those neurotoxic proteins. So then our drug would come in and lower the levels of all those neurotoxic proteins from ATP, which is a precursor for A-beta um, um, oligomers, and tau, and uh, TDP43, and prion, all these um, aggregating neurotoxic proteins. So in that way, we don't just remove one, so then the other neurotoxic proteins still are playing um, activated the bad molecular pathways and injuring your neuronal functions. We now remove all the bad guys. So in this way, it can have a much pronounced um, protective effect. Okay. And it, it, what's the name to this, you know, transitional um, inhibitor? Oh, we just got our generic name. It's Buntanetap. Okay. My first choice, but <laughs> no choice. <laughs> Okay, well, that's good. I thought I would probably crucify pronouncing that one. So I thought I'm just going to ask you to do it <laughs> on that one. Maria, how is how is this drug able to really in, inhibit more than one? I mean, is it, um, I, I still don't understand all the makings of, of how it targets them. Is there a way to dumb it down for me? <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure I can dumb it down, but I can try to explain it differently. So, as you know, DNA makes mRNA. In the meantime, we all know mRNA makes protein because we have it in the COVID vaccine. So, mRNA makes APP, makes tau, makes alpha synuclein, makes all the things that are toxic. Well, mRNA needs to go to a ribosome to become a protein. I mean, not to become a protein, to be translated into a protein. So the mRNA has the coding to make a protein. And there is this big protein called the ribosome that when the mRNA comes through, reads the mRNA and makes a protein. I, it's beautiful. I, I, I don't think any we could have any invi- invented it. It just is really beautiful the way nature works. So, okay, so you have the mRNA and it needs to go to the ribosome and the ribosome makes the protein. What our drug does, it keeps it bound to something else. So it doesn't go to the mRNA. There is another protein out there and our drug binds it to that protein so the mRNA cannot escape and cannot go to the ribosome. Therefore, the toxic protein is not made. Okay, because I was wondering, does does the body flush that through then? If it doesn't, you know, if it's not able to become toxic, does it does it flush it out then? Well, that's an excellent point. See, we talk about toxic, but the truth is, a beta tau and alpha synuclein have a function at normal levels. They are normal proteins. They do their job. Okay. They, the job in terms of signal uh, transmission. They do the job in terms of uh, having um, microtubules. They do something. But the minute you have too many of them, they get toxic mm-hmm. because they become clumped. You have heard that some of the antibodies don't, that they work against oligomers. Those are small clumps of these proteins. And then they make big clumps of these proteins, and then they're called plaques or tackles. Okay. 
Okay. Chang, anything that you want to add to that? Uh, no, I think Maria did a pretty good job in explaining this. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty complicated mechanism. But yeah. just in short is our drug um, by preventing those neurotoxic proteins, MRAs being translated. So we can regulate them at the normal level, right? To maintain their normal functions. In that way, we can preventing them being over overexpressed and form those clumps, and therefore we can preserve the normal um, cellular environment and preserve the neuronal function. Okay, I guess when I hear the the term toxin, I I always think, well, get it out of me, then just <laughs> flush it on through, you know, and I. And I, my mind doesn't think of it's just in overdrive. It's too much. It's, you know. But Lovi, you're 100% correct. If we made these toxic proteins in, in the tongue, for instance, we could just kick it out. Mm-hmm. Tongue regenerates, saliva takes them away. That's the end of it. If we make them in the brain, where do you put them? We have a skull. We have a blood-brain barrier. The brain is totally enclosed. They can't go anywhere. And in fact, some of the approaches help them come out, Some of, including sleep. People have found that if you sleep well, you clean up the brain better. So you were correct in saying, let's, let's make them go out. <laughs> Problem is the brain can't do that very well, other than if you stay in bed all the time. <laughs> well, and we have been hearing more about getting enough sleep and, and what that does to regenerate and, and cleanse the brain as, as much as just stabilizing us and giving us energy as well on that. Um, let's talk about, you know, are you doing any clinical trials at this point, um, you know, at your company? Well, we just finished two phase twos, one in Alzheimer's, one in Parkinson's. We did summarized our Parkinson's state and sent it to the FDA and asked if we could go into phase three. And they cleared us for two phase three studies, one in early and one in advanced Parkinson's. We plan to start the first one of those two studies as second quarter in May. With Alzheimer's, we haven't quite gotten there yet. We are still putting all the data together so then we can go to the FDA. And we expect to also do some some additional studies in Alzheimer's disease. But for Parkinson's, they're pretty set. Phase three, starting in May for the first study, then sometime later in the year for the second study. And somewhere in between, then we're going to start the Alzheimer's study. So do you know yet in terms of the Parkinson's study, um, how, how that'll come about? Is it is it in certain locations within the globe or, you know, how does that work? Yes, we are uh, in Europe and the United States, and it's 100 sites in Europe and in the United States. It's 450 patients, three times 150, and it's six months. Okay, okay. And can you tell us um, in terms of the study what someone would expect if they participated in it? Chang is my Parkinson's expert. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, pretty simple. We try to make it as low patient burden as we possibly can. So basically, it just involves patients coming um, first time for screening, right? Our criteria are pretty straightforward. 
if you are early Parkinson's patients, which is defined by a Ho and Yarn score that your neurologist would know. And then it's um, criteria one, two, three. And then if you, I think that's pretty much about it. Uh, we would attest to your cognition in a normal range. That means you don't really need a caregiver to come all the time with you and uh, take care of you at home. So um, that's, um, that's our very simplified inclusion criteria. And then you come in once a month for three months and then have a phone call in between. And then the six months, um, you come into the clinic for the end of trial. That's about it. Uh, we do not do, collect any of the spinal fluid. We do not do any of the expensive imaging. So we just uh, take blood samples for um, both biomarker and also for our pharmacokinetics uh, requirements. Okay. And so then they would they be taking a medication on a daily basis then or? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Once a day, easy. Okay. And is it a, is it a double blind? So people don't know if they're part of the study or not. And in the meantime, they call them quadruple blind. Okay. It's, it's still a double blind, but it, they make sure it just specifies that the caretaker, the family, the nurse, nobody knows. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. It's totally blinded. Well, interesting. Um, and so with the Alzheimer's um, trial, the question that I have, and I think a lot of people do too, is with these studies, how it's defined, because so many people say, well, they said I had Alzheimer's, but now I have this, you know, now I have this or, you know, and, and so they don't feel a lot of people don't feel confident in that diagnosis that it's really truly accurate. So how do you handle that? I mean, I suppose you have to go by the definition that is currently out there in what people have been diagnosed at, but it just seems like there's a lot a lot of people, and again, I talk with people all over the world, this seems to be pretty consistent where their diagnosis changes. I, I feel a lot of it is psychological. Sorry if I'm a little nasty, mm -hmm. but my mom had Alzheimer's. I called it Alzheimer's. Her friend who was two months older, her daughter refused to call it Alzheimer's. They looked the same. They behaved the same. Her daughter insisted it was vascular dementia. Now, honestly, does it make any difference? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but the word Alzheimer's didn't want to go through her mouth. Mm -hmm. So she insisted. I said, did she have a stroke? No. Well, we don't know. <laughs> yes, but does it make any difference? So on the other hand, if we had a drug that was specific for vascular dementia, then yes, then it's important that you make that distinction. But at this point, we don't have it. Yep. Also, also, what our drug shows, that's why I want to develop it in Alzheimer's and in Parkinson's disease. It doesn't care too much how you got to having diseased nerve cells. If you do have diseased nerve cells, it's going to fix them. So whether you have vascular dementia or whether you have Alzheimer's, our drug will probably help. Okay. And, you know, from what I was saying, I was saying doctors were changing the terms, not so much, but I have seen families that have refused to, to use certain terms as well. But 
you know, I've seen so many people who were living with Alzheimer's for many years, and then all of a sudden, no, now it's cognitive, you know, mild cognitive impairment, and they're saying yeah, is. But, but, but Lori, mild mm -hmm. cognitive impairment is very early Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. You see the difference? Yep, yep. I found a new word to make people feel less bad. Mm hmm yeah, well, they they got more upset over it because they said there's nothing mild about this. Oh, <laughs> so they, okay, I got it. I got it. There's a, but it, you know, or all of a sudden it's Louis body or it's frontal temporal or, you know, whatever. Um, and again, I think we just need a lot more education out there too with, with some of our doctors. Not everybody is, um, is trained in this. Plus I know it's, a, it's fluid. It's changing all the time. You know, when my mom, had her autopsy. I mean, we were told, well, the first 10 years, she was told it was just hormones. And she knew it wasn't just her hormones, because it was very different from her girlfriend's symptoms. Um, and then they finally got the Alzheimer's diagnosis. And then upon death, we did the autopsy. And it showed um, that she had um, Parkinson's and a little bit of Lewy body. And, you know, the neurologist asked, you know, did you see anything? And I said, well, you know, from the Louis body, we didn't really see any hallucinations or delusions. And I said, well, I suppose maybe, you know, she'd be sitting there sometimes talking to people, but it was almost to me. And some people won't agree with this because um, they'll see it as a spiritual thing where she had kind of crossed the veil and she was talking to people that was that were past, but she wasn't upset. You know, she was comfortable in those conversations where I hear so many people are frightened by their dreams and those types of things. And then with the Parkinson's, it was really hard because she had a little bit of a tremor, but then she ended up being wheelchair bound. And then you don't see as much, you know, of some of the symptoms and things there. So it, it is kind of a, a crapshoot with this, but it's, it's nice to hear that you feel, um, you know, your trial, you know, can deal with all of those things because sometimes people, I know when they're signing up for a trial, they're just not sure, do I have to have that diagnosis of Alzheimer's to be part of the trial, you know, with that. So that would be a question I'd ask if somebody had Lewy body or frontal temporal or vascular, would they still be able to be part of the study? And I know you're just submitting it at this point. And that's an excellent question, because let me go just a tiny little uh, back. You said your mom had Lewy bodies and she had, so she probably had uh, dementia of Lewy bodies. Mm -hmm. it kind of looks like Alzheimer's, but it's caused differently. But do you remember in the beginning, Cheng and I said that in the Alzheimer's brain, there is a beta tau alpha synucleon anti-DP43? Turn it around. In the Parkinson's brain, there is alpha synucleon tau a beta TDP43. So it's not a clean disease. That's why we have such a hard time getting drugs to work by working on one neurotoxic protein only. It's now the clean disease. And different manifestations may have very high TDP43, very low A beta. Doesn't mean they don't have it. It just mm -hmm. means reversed. So uh, that, and, and the reason about this change is that there is a new imaging mechanism. So they use the new machine and it tells them this is what's there. But the truth is, there are probably four things there. Yep. Yep. Um, Chang, I wanted to ask you about, you know, past trials in terms of what you've observed too, in terms of biomarkers and, and outcomes. And, 
and also patient reaction to being part of the trial? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So let me first answer patient reactions. It's quite um, interesting. So Parkinson patients, even though it's a quadruple blind study, they usually would um, feel the difference. Um, so even in the trial, so they feel they're better. And uh, some of them would um, write to us, write to Maria and saying that, you know, hey, you know, your drug works. And then she would be very confused because she didn't, you know, she didn't even know what the patient was taking, placebo or drug. So it's only after, you know, we close the blind, which means all the data are sealed and no one can change anything. Um, then we take a look and look at these patients. Actually, indeed, all the patients will told her that, hey, I feel better are taking our medication. And some patients were complaining, your drug don't work, we're on placebo. So that's very exciting. I think it's because the movement um, changes are easier to spot and easier to feel an improvement rather than a slight improvement of your cognition um, in Alzheimer's patients. Mm -hmm. So um, we're quite encouraged by that. Actually, we recently went to a boxing gym just for Parkinson patients. So they, um, yeah, they, some of their patients went on our previous trials and were told other uh, patients about it. So they invited us to give them a talk about our, our upcoming trial. So for biomarkers, um, it is, um, we did a both um, CSF biomarker and the plasma biomarker. And we did um, a lot of the biomarkers in this um, two phase two studies. So the reasons are twofold. First is we wanted to, the biomarker usually are used to validate your mechanism of action, right? Because you know, for patients, especially in the brain, we can't really open your brain to see what's going on. We can use the little protein levels in your blood, in your spinal fluid, to try to figure out, you know, what is going on, whether it's, you know, targeting the proteins that we wanted to target, whether it's targeting the pathways we wanted to target. Also, we're doing both is because, you know, for doctors, if you say, hey, you need to do spinal fluid, they're like, yeah, sure, the, the patients are used to it. But still, when you think about it, it's a lot of a burden to the patients, to the patients' families. So we wanted to remove that. So in this trial, we kind of to validate the biomarkers we wanted to see, comparing it from plasma to CSF to make sure that next time we don't have to do the CSF. Okay, <clears throat> great, thank you. Um, Maria, What is there anything that you wanted to add to that? And I've got another question for you. No, I think Cheng said it very well. My biggest concern with patients is they're suffering. You really don't need to stick them in a study where you stick them all the time, where you stick them into machines, where, you know, you do the best you can to keep it to a minimum and to make them comfortable. Yeah, I, I agree. There's, um, there's so many studies that people struggle with. And, and sometimes it's just even in the process of getting into a study, um, you know, going through, jumping through all these hoops and then getting kicked out at the last minute that that really frustrate people. I, I found it interesting when you were talking that uh, Chang about you got invited to the boxing 
club because uh, people were there. And, you know, I've just heard so many people with Parkinson's talking about the boxing and stuff. So it's nice that the word is spreading on the ground in terms of, of the studies in and of itself. Have you guys had problems getting, getting people into your studies? Cause I know that that is something I hear from a lot of different companies. Not for Parkinson's. Um, Parkinson's patients are younger, about 10 years younger than Alzheimer's patients on average. And they're still fighters. Their brain works usually quite well. Mm-hmm. So because, you know, we really don't do that much. Taking a pill a day is not a major issue. You take probably 150 pills anyway. So mm-hmm. one more is going to make any difference. So no, Parkinson's, we, we were very lucky. I foresee that in Parkinson's, we're going to be done very fast. Alzheimer's a little harder, mostly because a lot of the people with Alzheimer's stop driving, Mm -hmm. so they do need the caretaker, so it's more complicated than the older, like in phase two, we took spinal fluid. As Cheng said, we don't want to do it in phase three, but we did in phase two. So if your mother is elderly, has some comorbidities and has Alzheimer's, would you tell her to take six hours of spinal fluid? And it was mostly the daughters who said no. So mm-hmm. it was a little harder to recruit Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely, definitely is. Well, Maria, what's the outlook for the company? Where, where do you go from here? I know you've got this trial for Parkinson's that's approved and you're getting that up and running. And you're working on the Alzheimer's trial. Um, what else is down the road for you? Well, I don't think that more than four, four clinical studies in phase three are <laughs> down the road for me. I think we really, I really want to prove, this has been kind of my life, that my drug protects nerve cells from dying, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think it does, okay? All the data I've seen to date says yes. So now we're going to show it in phase three. You can't do more than phase three. If it works in phase three, we're done. Well, that's pretty exciting. So for the trial itself, you were talking, I think, was it in May that you were going to start? And then you've got six months out. And then how long does it take you to gather and then push everything back and go? It's not six months. It's six Uh months for 450 patients. Okay. So you don't recruit them all at day zero. Okay, makes sense. them over time. So it's going to be one and a half to two years. Okay, okay. And then to like analyze all the information and then kind of package that. That's a few months. I think that the study really, in the beginning, I believe we're going to be fast because, Mm -hmm. you know, with these gyms, if we spread the word, they're eager to participate. We show them the data. We have excellent phase two data. So, you know, while the study is blind, they're not blinded to the fact that this drug worked in a different study. Okay. So I don't see any problem in the beginning, but then the site, you know, they run out of patients. It's going to get slower as time goes on. Um, yeah, one and a half years and then another few months. If, if COVID kicks back into gear, you know, with another variant, which I know there's a couple hanging out there, it is, do you see that as slowing the process down? Not really. I mean, we did CSF in COVID. And in the beginning, it really slowed us down by about four or five months. And then slowly, you, you know, you pick up a lot of safety procedures. 
it worked pretty well. We had one COVID case in 100 patients. Okay. That had nothing to do with us. He got it from his grandson. <laughs> but the fact <laughs> is he did get COVID. So no, I don't see a problem again for Parkinson's. They'll be fine. I may see a problem for Alzheimer's because again, the people are weaker, they're older. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and people are getting used to, you know, the rules and the processes and they're tired of being cooped up. So they might be more likely to to step out where in the beginning, you know, it was just scary. So scary for everybody. Um, and yet we all thought, well, this will be over in two to three months. And boy, we were wrong on that one. <laughs> three years, yes. <laughs> well, good. Now, um, is there anything that we missed that uh, any questions I should have asked you that I didn't, uh, Jane? No, I just want to add on to what Maria just said. We actually also learned from the previous trials. Um, since our trial design is really simple, so if really comes down to that, you know, another round of lockdown, it's very easy for us to do what we need to do at patient's house. You know, the simple tests that need to be done can be done through um, Zoom and the blood sample, we can send nurses to come to your house to collect because it doesn't need any expensive instruments. So I think we are well prepared and uh, be ready for the next trial. Okay, great, great. Now, if people want to get more information, they can go to your website, which is um, anovisbio.com. That's A-N-N-O-V-I-S and then biobio.com. And if anybody out there has any media inquiries, you can go to Russo Partners um, LLC and you can ask for Erica, uh, E-R-I-C-A dot, and then last name is F-I-O-R-I-N-I at uh, Russo Partners LLC. So that's R-U-S-S-O Partners LLC dot com. Um, I really thank you both ladies for your time today. It was uh, really interesting learning of what you're doing and and exciting. It was uplifting when we hear so much kind of doom and gloom about, you know, therapies that are out there. It's, it's nice to hear that, you know, something's, uh, something's brewing that looks pretty dang good out there. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.